You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Uh, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin there at the end in verse 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. If we've, ever, if we've never met before, my name is Will, and uh, my wife and I get to serve as volunteer leaders here at Bethel White House. It's been a joy getting to know many of you as we get ready to kick off life groups. We are uh, praying and gathering, and uh, many of the life group leaders have been um, meeting over the past couple weeks to, to, to get ready, and uh, we're just excited and honored to do that. If you do have any issues, any complaints, or problems with life groups, just email Chelsea, and she'll be happy to um, uh, uh, respond to that. Um, but, but we are going to focus on this theme, continuing our series on authenticity. We're going to be looking at authentic biblical community this morning. And we're going to look at this portrait of this early church. This is actually the first portrait of the church that uh, ever existed. And we're going to be looking at this with a special eye to ask the question of uh, what would it look like for us to embody this? Yes, as a, as a corporate church with all of us here in this room, but also specifically in the context of life groups. And so uh, let, let me read this. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to work our way through this passage. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, you, you taught us to pray through the Lord's Prayer. Um, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What I really want to pray is, um, let, it, let it be what we just read in this first century church. Let, let us experience that today as they did back then. Father, this morning you offer us a picture of authentic, authentic biblical community. Why would we settle for anything less when the real thing is available to every last one of us? I pray that people in this room um, headed into the fall with life groups and those kicking off that there would be some similar testimonies like Paul gave this morning in the years to come from the work that you do through your people in the life of this church. There are people who, as, as Tony even mentioned, that, are, that have been uniquely designed to, to carry out your purposes and your works in the life of this church. There, there are people in this church that have unique needs that, that are going to be met through the ministry of those people. And so, Lord, I just pray you would cultivate a longing in all of our hearts to engage in that work, 
to participate in this type of community and that we would be able to demonstrate to this broader area in East Texas what biblical community looks like. So Holy Spirit, speak to your people through your powerful and living word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, this past week, uh, Tim Keller uh, held a memorial service for him. He's one of my heroes over the last hundred years. And uh, if you don't know him well, he planted a church in New York City in Manhattan. And uh, this is an area where, you know, when they built their church building, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it was the first new church building that had been built in Manhattan in some 40 or 50 years. So that just gives you some idea of the climate. This is not a Christian, let alone even a religious uh, climate. And so he would regularly be in conversations with people, uh, you know, who were agnostic, atheists, really had rejected God altogether. And sometimes, instead of immediately jumping into a specific argument or objection that they had about God, he, w- he would simply ask this question, okay, so, so you reject God. Can you just tell me a little bit about the God that you've rejected? And they might say something like, I don't know, he's unconcerned, distant, disengaged with human suffering. He just wants to nitpick every detail of my life. Uh, The God I've rejected seems to want to rob every bit of happiness and joy from from my life and and just kind of pin me down with with rules and regulations. And and Tim Keller's response in that moment would often be, um, oh, we actually have more in common than I thought because I actually reject that notion of God as well. So we're in this series on just authentic Christianity, and this morning we're focusing on authentic biblical community. And I think Clint has pointed out so well that there are so many people that have distanced themselves from the church, especially post-COVID, um, and there's all kinds of reasons that they've, that they've left, perhaps. Uh, but I would love for us to be able to ask a similar question to the people in our community that have rejected the church. I might like to ask them, Okay, so, so you've rejected church. Well, tell me a little bit about the church that you've rejected. And they might say, I don't know. Well, I, mean, I, well, I don't know. They just seem to kind of get together in their cliques and aren't really concerned with people who are on the outside. It seems like it's just a box that you check and then you go about your life and it doesn't really have any impact on you. It can, can be maybe a place of judgment and lacks compassion And I would love for us to be able to have a similar response to what Tim Keller would say up in New York here, except the response that we have to have is a little bit more difficult. Because we as a church community can't just say, oh, I reject that idea of church too. Let me tell you about the authentic one. Bethel Whitehouse, what we have to be able to say is, yeah, I reject that idea of church as well. Now let me show you. Let me show you the real one. And I I know so many people in this room's longing is that when when outsiders or maybe people have been disengaged from the church for a while were to find their way into this community, whether on a Sunday morning or into a life group or just uh, at your home for coffee, that they would have a sense of the real authentic thing. They would have a real sense of the real authentic thing. And the reason that I want to look at Acts 2 this morning is because this gives us the, the picture, the profile the blueprint for what authentic biblical community is supposed to look like. And I just press on us as a church this question. Why would we settle for a counterfeit when we have the real thing available to us? 
the real thing. And so this morning as we examine this early church community, what I, I want to do is spend our time kind of looking at a few specific areas. First, I want to look together at their heart posture and what was like the inner attitude that they had towards the church. Secondly, I want to look at their habits. And then finally, I want to want to look at one really huge question, okay? Their, their, hab, their heart posture, their habits, and one really huge question, and then to keep it going, we can go home, okay, after that. Um, uh, so let's, let's begin by looking, first of all, context, and then let's look at their habits. So uh, Pentecost has just happened in Acts 2. Uh, Peter is preaching to this crowd that's gathered in Jerusalem. It's a powerful sermon. The Holy Spirit is at work. Uh, people are cut to the heart, convicted of their sins. They ask Peter, what should we do? And he tells every one of them, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And uh, so many are baptized. 3,000 are added to their number. And then this is the picture of what that first church community looked like. And so, uh, again, what were their heart posture? What was their heart posture in this early church community? Because we would be moving too fast if we jump into all the stuff that, we, that they did, uh, because it's not enough to just look at what they did. We have to consider uh, what was their inner life like, look like? What was their inner attitude towards this church community that drove them to do the specific things that they did? And so let's pick it up right there in verse 42, and we're going to see the first and most important heart posture right out of the gate, and they devoted themselves. Their first heart posture was that they were a devoted people. There was no half-heartedness. There was no, I'll fit my time in for some biblical community when I, when I can, uh, once I get a few other things out of the way. Uh, they were all in with this thing. I was trying to think about how to explain this, and I think my daughter, Anna, articulated it so well a few months ago. So uh, for the first time ever, we live in a house with a pool. We've never done that before. And uh, with the temperature right now, we could probably host a crawfish boil right in our pool. It's, it is so hot, uh, not comfortable at all. Uh, but when the, the seasons were changing in May, it was really hot outside, but the water was, was cold. And so, uh, you know, my, my kids are uh, beginning to kind of tiptoe in, and I'm trying to explain to them, there's only one way to handle a cold pool. You can't tiptoe, you can't put one foot in, one, you can't go ankle deep. What do you have to do? You got to just jump all the way in. That's the only way to handle a, a cold pool, and then you adjust to it and all of that. Now, uh, we waited, I waited till June, uh, but they, they, they went ahead and dove all in. And, and Anna made this profound point as we were kind of talking about how you properly really get into a pool. She said, you know, dad, I think our relationship with God is supposed to be something like that. Like we're not just supposed to put like one toe in or one ankle in, like we're supposed to give all of ourselves in just like we go in the pool. I thought to myself, oh my gosh, Anna, like you, you understand walking with Jesus, Jesus better than the average East Texan. Like that's, that's remarkable. That's a really good illustration. And, and, and that seems to be the picture that this early church is walking in. They're, they're not half-hearted. They're not getting around to church. They're not fitting it in with their busy schedule. They are wholehearted, devoted. That's the first heart posture that you see here. I think the second one that jumps out at you at different points in this passage, passage is their generosity. Can, can you see their, their generous, uh, generous hearts at work beginning in verse 44? It says, "...and all who believed were together." and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this portrait of generosity, uh, valuing people more than their things, even selling their stuff to make sure the people in their community that had needs had those needs met. And then it just outright says it later on down there in verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple and together breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, this early church, looking at their heart posture, can clearly see they had a, a heart posture of generosity. Now, before they may have been devoted to a lot of things, before they met Jesus, they may have been devoted to their things, uh, the amount of money they had, uh, their personal priorities in life. But this saving encounter with Jesus has totally reoriented the priority that they place on other people. It has completely reoriented it. And I think this is so helpful for us to learn from their generous heart posture because uh, how do so many of us measure a successful church experience? So many of us measure the success of our church experience based on what we got out of it, not how we were able to serve someone else. So we might come to a church service like this and think to ourselves, well, you know, did I connect with the music and did the worship really, really speak to me? Uh, you know, did, did the preacher feed me? Uh, did anyone notice me? Like, there can be so much focused on us, whereas what we see from the heart posture of this early church is that they measured their success not by what they got out of it, but by how they were able to be a blessing to someone else. Can I just ask you to consider this morning, whether it's here on a Sunday or entering into a life group into the fall, is your primary concern, what will I get out of this? Or is your primary concern, how can I show up and be a blessing to someone else? That's the, that's the heart posture of the early church. They were devoted, they were generous. And then I wanna observe this final one too, because I think it's key. Uh, right, right before it says that they were generous, it says that they were glad. They, they were, it seems, happy to be a part of this thing. It was no obligation. No, well, I guess, you know, we're supposed to go to church or we're supposed to be in small group or life group, so let's just do it. There, there's a gladness. There's a joy. There's a, a, a smile on people's faces as they are participating in this. And, and I know that many of you grew up in churches and you were so glad when it was time for lunch. Uh, when, when, when the service was wrapping up and it was time to go eat, you were so glad when that happened. And then some of us were cursed with what? Mothers that, I mean, it's done, it's time to go eat. And what are they doing? They would carry on a conversation that would last for hours and years sometimes when we just wanted it to be over and we just wanted to go eat. But, but what we see with this early church is that they weren't excited to yet like get through it, get through the small group and do what I really want to do. Man, they were so glad. They were so happy to be a part of this thing. And so right out of the gate, before we can talk about what the early church was doing, we got to look at their, their heart posture, their attitude, kind of the, the inner workings of their own soul and how they engaged in church community. And this is a cliche thing to say, right? Have you ever heard this in a you know, East Texas setting before? Check your heart. Anyone ever had that one before? Can I, can I just actually go ahead and use that this morning, though? When you think about your relationship to the church, would you take just a moment and, and actually check, does your heart posture towards the church match the heart posture that we see here in the very first church in Acts chapter 2? Do you have a, a, a heart posture that's devoted, 
all in or do just enough to check the box? Do you have a heart posture that's asking the question, how can I be a blessing to someone else as opposed to just what can I get out of this for myself? Do you have just a heart posture that says, man, I'm privileged to be here. What a joy that it is to, to, to be numbered among the people of God and to dwell together with them in fellowship. I know as Chelsea and I are leading out in life groups for this year, you know, one of the things that we are specifically praying for life groups, some of you have had incredible experiences at life groups, like Paul described this morning, that's great. Others of you uh, go, but it's kind of an obligation, and some of you don't go at all. We've got all the, everybody in here. Man, one thing that we are praying that, that God would do is that he would move your experience at life groups to be something on your calendar that you are genuinely looking forward to every week that you, you, are, you are eagerly anticipating showing up, whether it's here or someone's home or wherever it is, that there's this, this gladness that's there. But the only way that that's gonna happen is if we begin to embody the heart posture that we see in the early church. So we wanna experience authentic biblical community. We've, we've looked at number one, their heart posture. Let's, let's dive in and look real specifically at their habits, their practices, the, the things that they actually did. And let's, let's begin right back there at the top in verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right out of the gate, they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. I would imagine that pretty much in any society, there are certain voices, certain people that when they speak up, everybody quiets down and listens. Like, when you're speaking, you have something significant to say, and I want to tune in. I don't know who it is for us. Maybe it's a Joe Rogan. Maybe it's a Tucker Carlson. I learned of a new one this week. My daughter, Ava, walked in, and she had her shoes. And like instead of putting them nicely somewhere, she just flung them up into the air uh, you know, where the rest of the shoes were. I was like, Ava, that's not how we put our shoes away. And she said to me, Dad, that's what Dude Perfect does. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the voices in our culture that at least for my kids, when they speak up or when they set an example, uh, we tune in, we, we, we follow it. Well, in the early church, when the apostles spoke up, when they had something to say, as we can see right here, everybody quieted down and tuned in with eager anticipation for what they were going to say. Why? Yes, of course, because they had spent the last three years with Jesus. I would want to know what they had to say with that. But even more than that, the apostles had been appointed by Jesus to be the very foundation of the church to such a degree that when the apostles of Jesus spoke under the inspiration of the Spirit, it was as though Jesus himself was addressing them. And so this early church, when the apostles speak up, when the apostles have something to say, the early church is on the edge of their seats. The early church is devoting themselves. They're eager. They're hungry. They long to receive what the apostles have to say. Now, we might say to ourselves, well, that must have been awesome for them back then to have the apostles. Well, brothers and sisters, guess what? We have their very words, the inspired word of God delivered from the apostles given to us that we can receive for ourselves. And so whether we're gathering here on Sundays or we are gathering together in life groups, there ought to be in us this, this, this habitual hunger to receive the, the food that's delivered to us through God's word. There ought to be a, a hunger to like, yes, get to know one another. Yes, spend time together. But let's get God's word open and see what it has to say to our lives. Number one, they were 
engaged in the practice of devoting themselves to God's word as delivered to them, to the apostles. Number two, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then secondly, to the fellowship. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Was that like a two-minute greeting time in between worship songs when they shook hands and introverts like froze up and hated that moment? Um, was it like a, a time of fellowship where there was some snacks after service and they kind of talked a little bit and then went out of their lives? No, no. It, it was something much deeper than that. The word here for fellowship, maybe, you know, if you've ever heard that the New Testament is written in this word koine Greek, that word koine just means, means common. That, that's the word that's used here in this passage for fellowship, meaning they were all connected to Jesus by faith, but that had created a common bond between all of them. And that they were not just attending church gatherings or showing up in homes, but there was a connection between them, a true fellowship, a true friendship, you could even say, that was being experienced by this early church. They enjoyed actually being in one another's lives. And I think that word right there taps into a longing that so many people in our culture, I would venture to say so many people in this room have right now. Sociologists are grappling with this problem in our society that we are more digitally connected than ever and yet we are somehow more lonely than any human civilization before. And I think this only compounds and gets more difficult as we get older. Um, you know, if I were to, to ask a show of hands among all of us, and I would say especially this is true for the men in the room, how many close friends do you have? So many of us would say zero. Someone recently tweeted out a joke regarding Jesus. They said, no one ever talks about the miracle of Jesus having 12 close friends in his 30s. Like, that's, that's an interesting observation. At least in our day, that would be, be quite miraculous. There, there is a longing in so many of us to walk in friendship, fellowship, community with other people, and yet it seems to elude us. And this isn't just true for us as a church. I remember having, we, we had a, 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 a new friend of ours over. We, we met her recently. She's younger. She was celebrating her birthday and her parents were out of town. So she wasn't doing anything. So she came over and she's young, man. She has all the time in the world. And so my wife just asked her at one point, and, and by the way, she's not walking with Jesus or anything like that. My wife just asked her at one point, you know, hey, so it's this new year. It's your 20, 20 something year. You know, what, what are your goals for the year? And I'm expecting to hear, oh, I'm going to travel to this country or I'm going to learn to wakeboard. or I'm going to do this exciting thing. She said, man, you know, I'd really just love to make a couple friends. And we never would have guessed that this person who's young in their early 20s would be dealing with this issue of loneliness, but it's everywhere. Our prayer is that our life groups would be a place where we can check our loneliness at the door and we can draw close to one another and experience the kind of fellowship, the, the connection, the, the friendship that we see in this passage. So they, they were, again, engaged in the apostles' teaching, fellowship. Another one, the breaking of bread. Uh, again, it says down um, towards verse 46 that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And so another priority, a habit that they regularly engaged in as the early church is that they were, they were eating together. They were eating together. They, they were breaking bread in their homes. There were a bunch of Romans there. I interpreted it as it was the first pizza party of the church that they ever participated in. That's what's going on. Regardless of the food, it doesn't matter. They were eating a lot. Now we might ask, why were they eating together so much? Was it that 
they were doing a lot. Like, look at all those habits, T apostles teaching, fellowship. Like, there's a lot of activity that it makes sure they had a lot of calories so they had energy to do the work they were doing. They were carving up by breaking bread for all of the work that they were supposed to do. And certainly they needed calories for what they were going to do. Um, but, but sometimes we think of, of food as just a practical matter. What we fail to realize is that there is spiritual significance when followers of Jesus sit around a table and share a meal together. There is spiritual significance to that. And the reason the early church was doing that is because they had actually learned it from Jesus himself. Have you ever stopped to ponder how, how predominant of a role eating played in the ministry of Jesus? You may be wondering, like, what's your spiritual gift? What are you supposed to do? You've never been able to find it. At least you can do that of all the things. But it plays a huge role. So the author, Tim Chester, he writes this book called A Meal with Jesus, and he makes a profound observation about Jesus. There are, I mean, it's the son of God who has come to earth to dwell among us and accomplish his purposes, right? Like Jesus has come to do something significant. Well, there are only three places in your gospels where you will read about what Jesus actually came to do. Number one in Mark 10, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Number two, Luke 19, 10, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Do you know the third mention of what it says Jesus came to do? It says the son of man came eating and drinking. And what Tim Chester in his book profoundly points out is there is a deep connection between Jesus's purposes of seeking and saving the lost and his purpose of eating and drinking and sharing meals with people. There is profound significance when the people of God will share meals in an unhurried time together and profound significance when we invite outsiders to participate in that with us. That was a habit of the early church. They regularly ate together. Let's look at the, the fourth one here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and finally, to the prayers, to the prayers. This early church, among all the things they were devoted to, they were devoted to praying together. You see it in the early parts of Acts, and you actually see it throughout the rest of your New Testament. So that word devoted at the beginning, I, I, I did just a search of it all throughout the New Testament. Where do you see it? And more than in any other place, it's connected to prayer. Later, Paul will say, be devoted to prayer. I think our issue as, as modern people is that we will do all the other things that are listed on here and then squeeze a little bit of prayer in the end just to make sure that we check that box as well and go on. Whereas it seems with the early church, they would say, hey, let everything else go as long as we are getting together to pray. That played such enormous significance for them because I think this is what it did. Everything that we've talked about for the habits of the early church so far have been fairly practical. Bible study, eating together, fellowship. What just got opened up here was not just practical, but powerful. If we want to see the vibrancy, the, the, the power that is, is being displayed here in Acts chapter two, the only way that it will come in our life groups, in our church community is through a devotion to prayer like they had. And you can see it happening in, in the, the, the two responsible parties in this passage. So first it talks about the responsible party of the church and all of the stuff that they did with it focusing finally on prayer. But then you see as a result what it caused the Lord to do in verse 47. And praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord 
added to their number day by day those who are being saved. That does not just happen. That is closely connected to our intercession, our prayers, our longing for God's power to be put on display in the life of the church. They were devoted to prayer. And then there's one final other habit that I want us to observe um, but before, before we, we close out this morning. Um, the, the final habit that we see at work here after the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer is the habit of hospitality. The habit of hospitality. You can see quite plainly in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So at the very least, homes are open. Now, uh, as I describe hospitality, I think we have a couple of challenges for us because I think there's a couple of ways that we misunderstand what it means to practice hospitality according to the Bible. Many of us confuse hospitality with entertaining. Okay, what is, what is entertaining? Entertaining is making sure my house looks like it never looks. Everything is perfect and in place. The children are well-mannered. Uh, you know, the, the, you come into just this beautiful charcuterie board, some, some, some really fine wine. Uh, the main course just takes your breath away. And you leave that, if you've experienced being entertained, thinking, wow, that, that was really impressive. That is not hospitality. Can I tell you the key difference uh, between hospitality and entertaining? Hospitality, I'm sorry, entertaining seeks to impress while hospitality simply seeks to bless. Can I say that one more time? Entertaining seeks to impress. Look at this house and this meal and all of the work that I've put into it. Hospitality simply seeks to be a blessing to someone else. It could involve having them in your home. I mean, they are breaking bread. It's the most simple thing that you can do. And yet people leave from the experience of hospitality thinking, wow, I was so blessed by being a part of that. It might not have been impressive. The house might not have been in perfect order. The meal might not have been to die for, but I was cared for. They showed interest in me. They were curious about my story and my life. I, I was blessed by that experience. I think that's one challenge that we have with, with hospitality. But the, the other one is that actually to practice hospitality, you don't even need a home to do it. Because the word hospitality doesn't just mean to have people in your home. It's a compound word in the Greek with two meanings. First, befriend. Second, strangers, outsiders. To, to show hospitality according to the Bible is to befriend, welcome those who are on the outside. Could be culturally, could be financially, it could be because they don't know Jesus. To intentionally befriend those who are on the outside. So, so hospitality is not so much opening your home for people, though it could be that, as much it is, as it is opening your eyes to people who are on the outside and welcoming them in. I think that hospitality might be one of the most powerful tools that the New Testament gives us to engage in Jesus's mission here on earth while it is also sometimes the most neglected. It is so powerful. Let me give you just a couple other examples of it. Uh, first of all, in Hebrews 13, 13. I love this description. This would be such a great verse to study in life groups. Hebrews 13, 13. Let brotherly love continue. That sounds like the fellowship we described earlier, right? Let brotherly love continue. But then it goes on to say, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 
What is Paul saying? Get close together as a church. Have brotherly love. Engage in fellowship and Christian friendship, but don't be so tight that you are unaware of the people who are still on the outside. Let there be an open door for people to come in and experience it. Uh, Peter says something similar. 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality can be for us one of the most powerful tools that God uses to draw outsiders into our midst, but... We have to open our eyes to people who are on the outside and have the boldness to actually invite them in. They engaged regularly in the practice of hospitality. I remember seeing it powerfully in the church that uh, I pastored back in Virginia. So um, I, we were having a, a baptism conversation with someone and uh, you know, her name was Allison and I, 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 we sat down at Chick-fil-A together. And that, that was really a sales technique, technique. Like if you're not sure about being baptized, let's have some Christian chicken. And then like that will surely seal the deal. But it really, Chick-fil-A wasn't even needed in that moment. This was her story. She lived across the street from one of our church members. She was home often with her two young kids, uh, as was the, the church member. And this, this lady across the street just noticed her, invited her in. They began spending time together with their kids, just getting to know one another. She began sharing some of the burdens that she was facing in her marriage and with her young kids at home. Uh, she then got invited to, we called them community groups, same idea, life groups, and she began participating in that regularly. She saw Christian love on display. She was cared for by the people in there. She was prayed for by the people there. And then finally, she started coming on Sundays as well and was, was hearing the gospel and was, was amazed by it. And I remember sitting across the table at Chick-fil-A from Allison with tears of joy rolling down her face saying, I believe the gospel. It's true. I believe it. I trust him. I have more joy in my life than I've ever had before, even though life is difficult. And where did this powerful encounter with Christ begin? A church member simply noticing an outsider, practicing hospitality and inviting them in. A final, final point on this. Rosaria Butterfield puts it better than, than I ever could. She says, she's a, she's a Christian author. Uh, she says, you know, uh, uh, biblical hospitality is turning strangers into neighbors. And by the grace of God, neighbors into family. Do you hear that? Biblical hospitality is turning strangers into neighbors. And then perhaps by the grace of God, turning neighbors into family. I want to close with just asking kind of one, one key question. Before I do, let me just give a little bit of application to this to life groups, okay? Um, they're going to kick off in the fall. And really, all we want to see happen is what we just read about take place in the life of our church. And we're going to follow, uh, Lord willing, a two-fold rhythm. There's going to be two types of meetings that you can participate in when you join a life group. One, we'll just call our word and prayer gathering. This could happen here on a Sunday morning. It could happen on a Sunday evening on the first and third Sundays. It could take place during the week. It could happen all kinds of different places and with people leading. But the, the, the goal here is, one, let's get to, together and let's get to know one another. We want to see your story being shared. We want to see people getting to know one another in a way that they haven't before. Number two, God's word is going to be open and we're going to be studying together biblical community. We're going to be just asking the question, how has God called us to live together as Christians? And we're going to look at that. 
And then finally, we're going to have a time of prayer together. Not just a couple quick prayer requests, but genuinely before the Lord, seeking him together as his people. That's going to happen twice a month. And then we're asking a, a, a huge ask, although I've seen how we eat at Potluck, so it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Uh, we're, we're asking for what we'll just call a family meal. So outside of your gathering where you focus on God's word and God's prayer, have a family meal together once a month where you get some food on the table, you slow things down, you put phones away, you can even watch the game on a Sunday, and your purpose at that time is simply to enjoy one another, to perhaps invite an outsider in to participate in that with you. And our prayer would be that as we practice this word and prayer gathering and this family meal, that we would begin to see what's happening here in Acts chapter 2 manifesting in the life of Bethel White House together. Can we do that together? Okay, amen. Well, one, one final question before we, we close and, and pray this morning. And, and that, that final question really is the, the key one. It's what all of this hinges on. And, and the question is this. How did this happen in the first place. So let me work backwards. We've talked about their habits, all the stuff they did. And, and at first we talked about their heart posture, like the thing that motivated them to actually do it. But, but the more important question is, where did that heart posture come from in the first place? What was it that so impacted these people to devote their entire lives to living this way? Because I think that's actually the challenge for all of us in this room. Like all of us, the question isn't so much like how do we do it, but the motivation to actually participate in this. Where, where did that motivation come from? Was it just that there was a lot of buzz about this new Christian community and some people thought, oh, this looks exciting. Let me participate in it. Was it that people, well, they saw all this happening with the early church. They didn't want to feel left out. It's kind of a Christian culture. So they decided to jump in. That's not what motivated it. Can I tell you? what motivated this devoted community of people following Jesus together. It was nothing short of extravagant grace. Extravagant grace. And you see that with the second word in this passage. Very simple word. And they. Who is the they in this picture? If we were to rewind the tape on that they, that, that group of people, just several weeks, just several weeks from there, do you know what we would see this group of people doing? They were in the same city, gathered in Jerusalem, and standing before them was the Son of God next to Pilate. The very Son of God, the Lord Jesus, who had spent the last three years teaching them, providing for them, feeding them, healing them. Like their lives had been permanently transformed by Jesus's presence on the earth. And there he stood next to Pilate, battered and bloodied, mocked as a king with a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe around him. And the very savior that had healed and, and taught and fed them was standing before them and when he was not what they wanted to be, do you know what they were yelling out on that day? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Now, this is the, this is the question. And, and, and if you don't believe me, look back in verse 36, the very group of people who end up in the church. Let me read what it says. Peter is talking to them. says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ Jesus, this Jesus who you 
crucified. That's the they. They're the ones who put Jesus to death. And yet somehow, several weeks later, here they are being ushered in by Jesus himself through his church to say, come in, come be a part of this community. How in the world does that happen? How do people who weeks prior had put Jesus to death are now prized members of his church community? It's extravagant grace, brothers and sisters. And you will not ever be motivated to participate in this kind of community until you understand that your face is also in the crowd of those yelling out, crucify him. That it is your sin, it is my sin that drove our perfect savior to hang up on a cross, to die under the death that we deserved, and then to rise on the third day to inaugurate the church that we are now invited to be a part of. It's extravagant grace. I heard a theologian named Ray Ortland earlier this week put it this way. Extravagant grace is this. It's the fact that God loves, this is profound, God loves to give his very best to those who deserve his very worst. And that's what he's doing here, and that's what he's inviting us into. All of us deserve his very worst, yet through faith in Jesus, we are given his very best. And so I'll close with this. And there, there might even be some in this room. There are some in this room that you might be on the outside. Maybe you have been far from God for a long time. Maybe you have been physically present in a church gathering, but based on how you live your life the rest of the week, you have been far from God for a long time. I just want you to hear this morning, no matter how many times you've heard it before, that the Son of God was driven to a cross where he suffered and died for your sins, for your sins, He rose from the third day and he now offers you forgiveness and an invitation to come on in to this kind of community. And so I just ask, are you here this morning and are you hopelessly lost in your sins? Are you a hypocrite that shows up here on Sunday and then lives wickedly the rest of your life throughout the week? Are you out of excuses and hopelessly lost? Well, the invitation from the Lord Jesus this morning is come and welcome put your trust in me, find forgiveness, and find participation in the most incredible community in the world, the true biblical local church. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.